Alrighty. And here we are with Tales of Lore Exploring the Mwangi. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. Um, let's do a quick introduction of our panel. I'll be moderating things. My name is Ron Lundin. Uh, I am a uh, developer, also also an author, uh, wrote some of the uh, Lost Omens Wangi Expanse book, and I am the lead developer for the Strength of Thousands Adventure Path uh, set there. Let's have everybody else introduce themselves. Eleanor. I'm Eleanor Farron. Um, I am a Pathfinder developer, uh, along with Luis Loza on the Lost Omens setting book line. Uh, we've uh, worked together to do all of those books, including the Lost Omens Wongi Expanse book. It's old. Uh, yeah, hi, I'm Sol St. John. I'm the I'm one of the newbies on the editing team. I've been there for about six months here at Paizo. Um, and I've, uh, I I worked on both the Mwangi Expanse book and I am currently helping to edit the Strength of Thousands AP. So, yeah. Excellent. And Quinn. Hi, uh, Quinn Murphy. I am a, a freelancer um, a designer uh, here. Done some other stuff um, with Paizo, but uh, particularly for this, um, I wrote, wrote the uh, second uh, adventure uh, spoken on the song wind. Alrighty. So we are going to do, we gotta, let's break this up into two parts because we've got a, a lot to cover, and uh, but they mm -hmm. fall into two buckets. The first is the Lost Omens Mwangi Expanse book. Um, and then we'll talk about the Strength of Thousands Adventure Path a little bit later. But uh, let's, Eleanor, can you kick us off talking about this book? Um, sure. Um, so... A lot of the Mwangi Expanse has been explored uh, to a little bit of detail in Pathfinder First Edition, uh, but it, in many in many uh, cases, it was presented as sort of an afterthought almost. Um, there were these wide, unexplored jungles, and then mentions of these completely new, interesting cities and cultures and everything, but. They almost seemed as though they were placed there to give you a chance to resupply before you wandered off into the jungles. And so in second edition, we sort of went, uh, wait, wait, back up. We, we want to hear more about this giant walled city with one of the best navies in the inner sea. Or uh, we want to hear more about this undead child mummy god that is ruling over an ancient temple city. And so that's what we did in second edition. And the book is 312 pages to cover this huge chunk of Southern Garand, um, which is the lower half of the inner sea region. Um, and I think a lot of people um, are aware that there are six new ancestries in this book to sort of flush out things that you won't see in uh, the rest of Avistan, but which are unique to the Mwangi Expanse. Um, there's very large sections on the people and cultures that live in the Mwangi Expanse, very prominent elven cultures like the Ekuje, uh, the dwarven cultures like the Talaru and the Mbeke, which we haven't really delved into before, Songo halflings along that line. Um, we have a bunch of new gods that are popular in that region, aside from just the ones that you commonly see in the inner sea. Um, we have uh, sort of a primer on the geography that's prominent in the region. So when you're traveling across the map, you can see where you wound up and what the places look like. And uh, very large sections on the major city-states that are down there. Um, Wangi Expanse isn't quite like Avistan. The 
nations don't really have these huge defined borders. Uh, there's enough abundance down there, basically, that most of these are very powerful city-states that uh, they have influence over the surrounding lands, but they aren't really considering themselves these huge nations. And uh, we also have a bestiary of new critters that you can see down there, um, such as some things that Ron wrote, which he might talk about when he gets his turn on this uh, section. But um, let's take a look at these new ancestries that I think a lot of people have been curious about since they were named drop in the world guide and um, not really elaborated on since then. Do we have, uh, I think we have a slide of the, uh, yes, there we go. This is the first one, the Kanrasu. Uh, Louise talked a little bit about it at uh, Paizo Fridays. Um, it's basically, um, it looks like a very impressive thing, but the actual Kanrasu is just that starry ball in the center. Uh, they don't all look like starry balls. Uh, some of them look a little more like nebulas. Some of them are like little tiny sunbursts. Um, but they're all basically cosmic forces that form up that little ball and they grow this wooden exoskeleton around themselves to interact with the world. Now, uh, the Kanrasu can't actually live without this wooden exoskeleton much in the same way that you or I do not do very well if we do not have our normal skeleton. Um, but uh, yeah, they, they can grow it according to their specifications, uh, how they want to see their role in life. And um, the, the multiple arms there, I think a lot of people are sort of hoping that they have that many arms, but it's actually because as they age, the wood of their exoskeletons gets harder, just like with real trees, it's hard wood. Uh, so those arms have actually hardened and locked into place and it had to regrow new arms out of green wood so that it could still move them around. But those arms are actually very important because um, that's how you get new Kanrasus, is they take off one of those arms and they put it on a nursery log. And there's actually a picture in the book that uh, we won't be showing here of a little Kanrasu sprout on a nursery log. And um, yeah, they're, they're sort of uh, quite out there <laughs> as an ancestry. I think a lot of people are excited about how out there they are, but at the same time, uh, that's a pretty big role-playing challenge, so that's one of the reasons they're rare. Um, a lot of, uh, so, so one of the, we're not sure where the Kanrasu came from, but the best leading theory is that somebody uh, tried to summon a Plimera Aeon and they messed up and it broke into a bunch of little shards and each one of those little shards is a Kanrasu. And that's how they've been going ever since. So that, that's uh, way more positive. Th that's way more positive than most summoning gone wrong stories. Yeah, yeah so, actually, I, <laughs> it has not stated whether the Conrasu ate the summoner, but even if they did, that's it's they're still pretty. They're, they're pretty okay as as you know decent people go. So um, the uh, uh, the next ancestor we have is the Galoma, which we haven't showed before. And don't worry about it because it's more scared of you than you are of it. Um, it's, it's actually um, because of the many eyes we had in there. When we concepted it, we assumed that it had those eyes to seek out 
predators, basically. Uh, there's a lot of multi-eyed creatures in nature, but a lot of them don't have really great eyesight, actually. Uh, but the Gloma do. Um, and you can see like the big green eyes on the front of its face, but also like there's these little green dots in its mane. Those are also eyes. They're kind of like scallop eyes or something like that. And they twist around and on these like little hair-like stalks. It's very unsettling for people to look at, but they, they are actually quite scared of other people. That's why they try to look so intimidating to, to make people, you know, leave them alone. Um, and basically the reason they're so scared of everyone, aside from the fact that they're instinctively prey creatures, is, is sort of the same reason that you or I might be unnerved by a cyclops or like the pale man in uh, Guillermo de Toro's, uh, what is it, Pan's Lambert? Is, you know, if you see something with one eye or no eyes, it's kind of unsettling, right? And so these Gloma, who naturally have, you know, hundreds of eyes, they look at you and they're like, uh, what is that thing? It's only got two eyes and they're forward facing eyes too. So that's clearly a predator. And so they're, they're very shy. Uh, they like to scare people off, um, but occasionally they'll come out of the jungles where they live and just usually to the Magambia, not usually anywhere else, but you might see one kind of stalking around. But um, yeah, they have a lot of perception-based abilities. Uh, their ability score is uh, wisdom and free, um, no, no penalty. Um, but they also, and this is a, this is a solely role-playing thing because there isn't really any way to represent this mechanically. Um, they, don't uh, process information quite the same as you as I do. Um, it's, uh, it was sort of described to me and I'm quoting this description because I can barely wrap my head around it. But so if you or I were to look at three pool balls on a pool table, uh, we could count those easily without having to do it individually. If there was something like eight on a pool table, we'd probably have to count, right? Um, so it was described to me as they were the reverse of that. If they see eight pool balls on the table, they can immediately know that there's eight just without, just by glancing. But if there's only three, they have to count. And so they, they have trouble with individual objects. They have trouble differentiating people from each other because they both look very similar. And because of that, people often think that they're just sort of mean because, you know, I'm not, I'm not Deborah, I'm, I'm Barbara, can't you tell us apart? But the answer for the Globa is actually no. So uh, they're, they're very, much like the Kanrasu, they're very out there to role play, but at the same time, it's a bit of a challenge and that's, they're also rare ancestries. And uh, the third ancestry that we have is the Shisk, which after those weirdos, uh, the people of the Milwaukee Expanse are probably thinking, ah, oh, thank goodness, somebody normal looking. Um, <laughs> but these are the bone-feathered Shisk, and it's almost literally bone-feathered. They used to have feathers, but the pin feathers calcified. Um, if you don't know what a pin feather is, basically when birds molt or uh, grow in their feathers, it comes out in like the sheath um, and that's called the pin feather, but in their case, they've basically calcified and turned to bone, so the feathers never come out, and that's why you have these quills. Uh, but there's actually a picture of a very young 
uh, shisk in the book that still has chick fluff because the fluff doesn't come out in those pin feathers. So uh, it's kind of interesting to, to see uh, how they look differently from youth to adulthood. But um, they're actually, th these people are very secretive. They don't eat a lot, so they don't trade with most other people and they like to keep to themselves. So people often don't understand them very much. They also have very pointy like front teeth. And so some people mistake them for Asambasams or uh, basically Mwangi vampires. Uh, now, if you look at the Asambasam, which is in the Mwangi Expanded book, they don't look anything like, but if you've never seen an Asambasam, you might think, oh, these things, you know, oh, the Shisk have pointy teeth. They're clearly vampires and sort of accidentally mistake them for one another. Um, but because they're so reclusive and they're very secretive, um, they almost value knowledge and secrets more than uh, any sort of valuables or even food. They like knowing things that nobody else does, including other shifts. And they, they can even be a little weird to traders because they think they're lucky if they can get away with learning something and only trading material goods for it instead of secrets. Um, so you'll see, you might see some of them at the Magambia too, because they want to get out there and learn all this cool magic stuff. But, uh, for the most part, they're very rare as well. Oh, excellent. Excellent. Thank you for showcasing the, uh, those three new ancestries, total of six in, uh, in the book. And I think we've seen the first yep. three, but now everybody's seen this last three, the weirdest three. Um, <laughs> So you had a uh, sort of, if you could talk a little bit about your very interesting connection to this uh, Mwangi expansion. <laughs> uh, yeah, my connection is that this is actually the first book that I wound up working on for Paizo. Uh, it was, I was originally brought in as a freelance editor to do some of the pre-layout passes on this book. Um, and then shortly thereafter, I was hired onto the team to be a full editor. And that, so I, I got to participate in the post layout as well um, and see how everything went from Word document to what's eventually going to be on the printed page. And it was really my first experience with a publishing company, just getting to see that and getting to see this vibrant and beautiful setting come to life in ways that were really, like the writing itself, were all, the, from the very beginning, the writing was already beautiful and evocative and like even just looking at it a world doc in a word document you could see how alive everything in the Mwangi expanse was and how vibrant all of the cultures are and then to see that brought to life in these just gorgeous illustrations uh and like even 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 the things that you think might be a little creepy are beautiful in their own way and there's a lot of interesting new ideas here that I haven't seen in fantasy works before. Um, like the one that really jumps out to me is that if you think you know orcs, you've never seen orcs like the ones in the Moengi. And they are fantastic. Oh, excellent. Excellent. Yeah, we've got a lot of adventure in the uh, Lost Omen's Moengi experience. Excuse me, the fourth illustration, for example. Uh, that shows some of the real vibrant... Uh, encounter opportunities we've got 
yeah some of this some of this art is just amazing um so i uh I did do a little bit of the writing for Wang Expanse. That was a lot of fun. The biggest piece that I did uh, was for the Kibwe section to write up the whole city of Kibwe. If we could see the next illustration. Um, one of the things, and I touched on Kibwe a little bit before um, in an adventure that we, we sat there uh, a short time ago called The Slithering. And there's a little bit of kind of a, a little peek about Kibwe in the back of that one, a gazetteer in the back of that adventure. Um, but I was excited to be able to go into more detail about it here. One of the things that's really fun about Kibwe, one of the things that frankly makes it, I think, one of the most interesting cities um, in the Mwangi Expanse, I mean, I'm a little biased, right? It's the one that I wrote, um, is just how cosmopolitan it is. It's just one of those places where you can you rub shoulders with just the, the zaniest other kinds of people, right? Shisk seeking knowledge or... Galoma's trying to keep out of people's way. Cobalt's selling ice on the uh, street corners to people. Um, but it's a real place where a lot of different um, factions and opportunities of the Mwangi Expanse all come together. And they do so in a city that's got its own host of secrets, right? It's uh, the uh, former trading post. It's got these weird statues that people uh, say sometimes come alive and, and watch over the people of the city to protect them. But but do they really? Um, sometimes they can be a little bit uh, ominous, and I like being able to talk about that in the uh, in the Kibwe section as well. That was a lot of fun. I did also a uh, little bit of writing for uh, some of the gods that are presented in the Mwangi Expanse, and then a couple of monsters, and it was really cool to be able to pull from African mythology to be able to develop a couple of the monsters, you know, weird crocodile sort of thing that lures travelers in a huge hippo there's a uh uh with a collar of fire around its neck that's uh um that was really neat i, I really appreciate the opportunity to write uh write for this one um and then one of the other big city sections is nantambu quinn you got to go into you got to explore nantambu quite a bit There we go. Queen, you're on mute. Of course I'm on mute. Okay. Sorry about go. that. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I was, uh, uh, sorry. I was, I, was just, I was just getting ready to talk about the picture as we um, uh, went on there. Um, with, you know, you can see from the picture, um, there's this, uh, you know, huge network of canals um, going through the city and, um, is what, what I like about Nantambu, um, kind of like looking at it from a, you know, a, a not having written it, but sort of using it as a source and a springboard for adventures, um, and sort of also putting in my like sort of GM cap for running my own games in it, because that's going to happen. Um, I, I, what I liked about it is that it's, you, you know, you can see in the picture, it's so, uh, it, it's, uh, you know, very like, uh, refined kind of uh, sophisticated sort of architecture, but also redont and lush and green. And it's a place that is, um, you know, metropolitan, uh, you know, magical, a little bit wild. 
and rather than being like you know but you know but there's like you know sort of some you know areas for sort of crime and shady business and all, all of these things sort of existing in in different layers um together but but not in a way that makes it seem uh kind of washed out of identity but in a way that's integrated um and so it's just really uh you know it was really fun coming up with uh you know layering any two elements um in the city where you know you could be going on uh you know um you know that you could be doing stuff with art or you know um out and sort of you know out on the outskirts of the city in some sort of um, you know, wetlands and, and things like that. So I, I just, I just liked it. it I, I felt that it let me, um, as both sort of a, a counter designer and a GM sort of do urban adventures that had their own kind of life to them. So that, and that's what I'm excited for other people to get to see with it as well. Oh, excellent. Excellent. All right. Well, that's the uh, that's the Mwangi Expanse. Some uh, pulling back the curtains a little bit more there in order to show that coming out. Um, the other piece that I want to talk about is the Strength of Thousands Adventure Path, which is a six-part adventure path. takes characters from first level all the way to twentieth level, um, and it's coming out in the uh, the back half of this year. So July to December of this year is the uh, the Strength of Thousands. Um, comes right after the uh, Ruby Phoenix. Uh, this is the Ruby Phoenix Adventure Path, and the 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 Strength of Thousands Adventure Path is our magic school adventure, but it's set in the Magambia, the oldest academy of magic in the world, that's set in the city of Nantambu. Uh, that Quinn was just discussing. the The arc follows the uh, heroes who start as just new initiates who are just barely first coming to the first scene is their sort of intake um, orientation slash orientation for the school. And throughout the adventure path, the students go from, uh, the players go from, from students, uh, eventually becoming teachers, uh, stumbling upon some, uh, some lost lore, and then becoming, uh, having the fate of the Magambia itself sort of in their hands at the end of it. So uh, there's a real, narrative arc there that is really lengthy. This is the kind of adventure path uh, that isn't necessarily like the stories where we're, well, we're going to kick down the dungeon. When we get to the bottom of the dungeon, we're going to stop. Um, and it, maybe it takes a couple weeks, maybe it takes a couple months. This is this is one that's intended to sort of span your characters' lives in years. Um, we do that a couple of ways. Primarily, it's a uh, uh, academic subsystem that we introduce that lets you sort of grow your character as you learn, as you attend classes. Um, so it, it's going to be kind of as easy as, all right, well, now it's time to attend some classes. A couple months are going to go by in game. How do you want to do this? Players make some checks. Okay. Now, three months later, and uh, so time goes by uh, uh, fairly quickly, fairly long period of time in this. Um, the Students at the Magambi, anybody that goes to the Magambi, it goes through several different ranks and you start out as an initiate um, and then become an attendant and then a, a um, conversant and then ultimately become a lore speaker in order to graduate. Uh, and the uh, uh, 
And at that point, many people in the Magambia go elsewhere. Some stay to teach. Your players in this adventure path will do that. Um, and then have a lot more uh, responsibilities uh, as they go through. Uh, I think the thing that is really neat about this is there are all sorts of hijinks that you might expect from a magic school story that we're telling. But the Magambia has a very definite place in our world, and it's got a very definite position that is about we we are teaching people to be wardens and guardians of the world the the organization itself is neutral good and alignment and so it's it's not the sort of place where you're going to uh they're going to arm you with all sorts of uh, awful lore in order to uh you know dominate uh, your section of the world sure i mean you're there to help people and the lessons you learn the adventures that you go through are going to be all about that um and if we could get the uh, the next illustration, I think it is number seven. Um, I want to say briefly the I, I love this picture. the The strength of thousands adventure path gets its name from a tradition at the Magambia. This is a scene in the Magambia. Anybody who becomes a lore speaker, um, it chisels their name onto this obelisk that's in the middle of the school that everybody sees when you walk to and from classes. Everybody at the Magambia knows that you are standing on the, the, the shoulders. You are supported by the strength of the thousands who have come before you. And it, uh, it gives a sense of the, the great antiquity uh, and the great history of the, uh, of the school. Um, it's had a lot of its own sort of exciting history and people. If we could get uh, illustration number eight. School itself was founded uh, millennia ago by old mage Jatembe. Uh, who brought magic back to back to humanity after the uh, back to the world after the age of darkness, and uh, he had plenty of uh, plenty of old foes that he fought with in his time. Um, uh, this is him fighting against a, uh, a mysterious and dangerous sorcerer known as the King of Biting Ants. Um, but uh, after his many adventures, or during his many adventures, in order to try to bring hope and peace back to the world, knowledge back to the world. Uh, he worked hard with his 10 magic warriors at his side to establish the Magambia. And it has, it has lasted ever since, and it really carries on old mage Jatembe's legacy uh, in the world. Um, the, uh, and I guess the, uh, the exciting thing about learning not just the lessons at the Magambia, but the, the history is that you get a, in the course of the campaign, sort of unpack a lot of this background and, and uh, I think that's a lot of fun. And now, so I know you've been doing a lot of your work with the uh, uh, Strength of Thousands. Can you tell us what you've seen, what you think about that? Keeping in mind, we're trying to sort of keep spoilers to a minimum. Oh, for sure. Uh, and keeping the spoilers to the minimum, it really is... Uh, I, I love how this AP captures... the. You described it as the, the magic school adventure, and it really does capture that genre. But... But it's it's that genre, but distinctly decolonialized in a way that I love. Like you never see this. Most uh, most magic school adventures tend to be, you know, boarding schools in the Western style and the Western end. Uh, all of the baggage that come with that. This is wholly unique in that it doesn't come with all of the same baggage, and it winds up feeling very familiar but unique, um, and very real. And I especially love. 
all of the the characters, the NPCs that are populating this for your players to interact with, your classmates, your teachers, and the kind of interconnected lives that they lead, and how it, it feels like there's somebody here that every player is eventually going to fall in love with and want to be their best friend to see them through to the end of graduation, and I think that is an amazing thing to get out of a story, uh, especially one that's not quite so focused on, like you said, kicking down the door and going off on a dungeon crawl, because like those can be great fun, but there's also just great fun to be found in navigating the social politics of a school and figuring out your place in it and what you want to learn and what your legacy you want to leave behind and just building up uh, not just yourself, but the school and the surrounding town and just doing good for the world. It really does feel like you're learning to reach out and uh, protect and guide the world into a better place and that's it's everything about this uh, adventure brings a huge smile to my face whenever i'm reading it um, I, i'll be i'll be working on something i'll be working on an edit and just have to stop halfway through to just go oh that's so touching you know it's little things like that throughout <laughs> uh people are gonna love it i'm sure i'm sure there's just so much fun to be had uh, that that is great, and we can zero in on some of the the specifics. Uh, Quinn, you want to talk about your experience writing the second volume, spoken on the song wind? Yeah, um, it, it's it's interesting. So so uh, in that one, uh, you know, keeping it as well free as can. Um, it but we we come into sort of the player characters after they sort of. Uh, been with the school for a bit and then they get kind of um they get an opportunity to kind of go um deeper in their studies almost it's almost kind of like a um oh almost like sort of an internship but you but but uh you're more you're less sort of being just uh sent out to get credit and more kind of to almost um represent and uh, be a credit to the school you're out there to uh, like you said uh, before uh, your mission is to sort of help people and so they want to train you rather than sort of giving you a bunch of knowledge and then um, having you sort of graduate and be like well but we, we hope you help someone they, they sort of uh, have you make your training helping people and and then it was a really uh, you know we keep talking about sort of the some of the uniqueness and unique opportunities of it and and for me it was a it, it took me kind of a second to kind of uh, take off my normal adventure writing brain a bit and 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 put on a new one because it's really about um, these things were you know there there was heroism in them and you're um, helping people right uh, as a sort of typical uh, adventure goes but you're really kind of trying to uh, you're you're trying to do it in this sort of sustainable growth well way and there's like lots of like uh, you know, lots of sort of typical hijinks, but some stuff that is, I feel, pretty unique that you get to, to do. Um, and, and you're sort of given these opportunities to, you know, um, make art, um, <laughs> given opportunities to, um, you know, uh, help with like, you know, basically, you know, uh, uh, civil engineering and um, you know, public works kind of projects and, and, and all of these different things that are meant to just um, not just grow your character's level, but like kind of grow your character as a, 
a person like that. That's what I sort of hope people get a chance to sort of experience in that in this thing that's going to be taking year, you know, probably take uh, you know some years off of your character of your character's life uh, for the events of this one to unfold. And you know, you'll be studying, you'll be going on these uh, different kind of uh, adventures because uh, it's very sandboxy um, most of it uh, and then and then once you have grown and sort of picked up and, and, and sort of really getting a chance to think about who your characters want to be as people um, then there will be opportunities for you know that running through this whole sandbox is going to be these undercurrents right there are these kind of seeds planted of, of this greater mystery going by and then you'll uh by the time your characters are you know you, you sort of you feel sort of really ready to be out in the world and sort of competent in what you can do to um, with your magical abilities and how you're going to help others um then some really big opportunity to 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 do something and to help others is going to present itself to you um and that you know that uh, definitely no spoilers on that but uh, i'm, I'm excited to see uh, how people will uh, deal with some of that and, and explore it. Um, yeah, this is great. Fantastic. I, uh, I am keeping an eye out on the, uh, the Twitch chat. We're going to have some uh, Q&A at the end. So if you've got questions, we'll be able to take a look at those. One of the things that, that I heard somebody mention is that they love having NPCs that you can come back in the campaign to kind of revisit over and over in order to meet them. And uh, Eleanor, you had a, uh, a really big hand in those in that most of the ongoing NPCs in this adventure path are, are ones that you've created. Uh, do you want to talk about the students and teachers there? Yeah, um, so it says as much in the article in the adventure path, but uh, you know, there's there's learning involved in the school experience and it can really make an impact in your life but uh a lot of the school experience is also your peers the people who you also learned alongside your friends maybe your rivals or enemies or school bullies or whatever and so uh we knew it was going to be important to have those classmates alongside of your adventuring party um so it's not just you it's this whole living, breathing school with people who have their own reasons for being there and their own personalities and who might like you or might hate you. And if they like you enough, they might, you know, uh, show you some things they've been working on. Um, all of these NPCs have um, what they call, um, I think it was a, no, it's not a signature. It's a, the specialty magic or a specialty magic item. Um, that is, it's not unique to them, but it's not a common spell or item, or in some cases, witch lessons, uh, things like that. And you can learn it, um, if they are friendly enough to you and they decide, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna show my friend something cool. Um, but. I, the very first thing I did when I knew I had to write these NPCs for the adventure path was I asked all of my coworkers and all of my friends, the most memorable teachers and students that they had in school. 
and uh, got some got some fun stories out of that. And you will see a lot of those stories woven into these NPCs. And the end result is they are all bursting with personality. I think, uh, you know, a lot of us going through school, we have, you know, oh, I know that person. How? And then there's the the ones where it's like, oh, that that one. I can tell you a whole lot of stories about that person. Uh, and I I like to think that the the teachers and the students in here are all the latter of those. Uh, I think, I think you have a picture, Ron, of the of two of the students. Um, potentially causing some trouble. Uh, oh, let me, yeah, let's get that next image. That's uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so these uh, might be some of the ones you're telling some stories about. Uh, yeah, they, they may have a history of some bad decision making. Um, the, the one in the purple coat is Ignacy Cantarell's uh, the token white student. Uh, don't worry, he's the only one. But um, he's actually from former Sargava, now Vidrian, and uh, he supported the revolution actually for his own reasons. Uh, but he is here at the Magambia to try and put his learning towards helping Vidrian with its foreign affairs because it's still a very unsteady nation, um, and he's very very polished and very careful but he does have a flaw that he can be talked into bad decisions by attractive men uh, which is listed out in in a little stat block in his entry uh, so you may be seeing the end result of one of those bad decisions uh, the the one that is running next to him is a Mbeke dwarf named uh, Hybrim and uh, he uh, he has the attitude of sort of go hard or go home, and uh, that that results on him doing things like uh, jumping off a three-story building to win a game of tag. Uh, so we're not we're not sure what he's doing here, but he is fully committed to it. Um, he's at the Magambia because a lot of Mbeki dwarves actually have a very strong affinity for air magic. Uh, you usually expect dwarves to be a sort of earth, but um, the Mbeke live very high up in the mountains and they are very good friends with cloud dragons and they sort of consider that part of their identity that they are friends with cloud dragons and they seem to have this natural affinity for elemental air. So uh, Hybrim came to the school to sort of, uh, you know, develop that talent. Um, but he, he might uh, have some follies in school along the way. And they're running away from the uh, kobold uh, quartermaster isn't quite the right word. The school supplier, uh, Jokan, uh, who's who's very fussy about students getting any more materials than they should, and is very fussy about everything being recorded. Um, <laughs> he is clearly not happy with how things are going at this current moment in time. <laughs> yeah, there there are a. Uh... Um, in addition to the, the, the host of NPC students uh, that are presented in the first volume, uh, there's similarly a bunch of, of teachers that are presented in a later volume. The students are presented about the time that they are your peers to kind of get to know them as your peers. And when you're a student, the teachers are sort of, I mean, they appear, they're important, but they're sort of distant figures. They're, they're the ones who are giving you your lessons. They're the ones that you're sort of looking up to, that you're supposed to keep some sort of distance from um 
But when you become teachers yourselves, the players become teachers themselves, these people are now their peers. And so they're likely to get closer to them in like a friendly way. There are several missions that they're going to go with with them on. And so there's a similar uh, a similar article later that presents a number of these teachers as well. Um, and then there's a whole host of the other people that populate any uh, any school or academy. There's the the woman who's in charge of the 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 dining hall wants to just wants to make sure people get fed and there's the uh you know the gardener who seems to be a little bit mysterious people don't know what's up with her necessarily um because she's just such a different personality in the garden as opposed to uh outside of it and then the uh and then the cobalt uh the school supplier and and that lets us touch on a lot of the ways that this is just a different type of school than the sort of you know the western boarding school academy you know pay a tuition at the Magambia. Once you're in, you in fact get a stipend to live on. And so uh, the players the end terrain. up talking to this <laughs> players end up talking to this cobalt a lot because he's the one they go to every month, saying, all right, well now I get my whatever supplies I need for the month plus my living expense. And gosh, starting at even first level, your first level, this is kind of a lot of money. <laughs> but uh, um, the Magambia wants to make sure that their students can really focus on the learning and the work that they do. So it it inverts a lot of the uh, um, a lot of the typical European sort of sort of school items, and I think that's I think that's really neat. Um, so I'm very excited for Strength of Thousands to get out into the world and and have people see all the fun um, all the way through the uh, the very first one, uh, Kindled Magic, which is by uh, Eleanor Farron and uh, um, Alexandra Bussian, who is uh, um, uh, worked very closely with Eleanor and getting a, uh, a just a just a rocking way to start the whole adventure path. Um, alrighty, uh, I think from this we can we've got some time to go into Q and A questions. If you want to put anything up there, um, we have <laughs> we've had a ton of requests. Like people want more art, and I think that is awesome. Um, somebody was saying they wanted more more about Anadis, the, the spider people from the, from the Mugambi. So we don't have any more art to show, um, but I do want to say... You know, <laughs> uh, uh, that's Spider-Man. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, the Anadi are these very shy spider people um, who they, they realize that most humans do not like spiders, uh, just sort of an instinctual fear. And so they spent a very long time in the past learning to uh, take on a humanoid shape with illusion and transformation magic. The downside is now a lot of humans think that they are humans who are cursed to turn into horrible spider people at night. Uh, so, so, you know, you win some, you lose some. But they uh, have been in second edition since the very first adventure path. There was an Anadi woman in that, um, and people have been curious about them since. They will be in this book as the one of the uh, playable ancestries. And uh, if you don't mind some spoilers, they'll also be in the adventure path, Strength of Thousands. But that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> as, as for the request for more art, um, go bug Eric Monaf to show you all the slides that he sort of ran through uh, in the keynote presentation. And maybe he'll 
take pity on you and show you some. I know I've seen people screen capping them and putting them on the internet. So uh, maybe just look around. <laughs> and when people do get to, to see, see the Anandi art, I when people do get to see the Anandi art, I those are some of the cutest spiders I've ever seen. <laughs> Like, the artists did a fantastic job of taking a creature that's usually kind of creepy and being like, oh, I want one. I, I want to be a friend with this one. They're so cute. <laughs> yeah, Bay and Nadi are basically all based on uh, peacock spiders or, or sort of uh, jumping spiders. Uh, I think they're sort of nicknamed. Uh, it's like their scientific name is like Saltise or something, and people call them salties in the, in the entomology world. Um, and they're sort of unusually cute for spiders. They have these really big eyes and they do a little dance to, you know. <laughs> That's adorable. I do want to share one of the stories that uh, I don't, I certainly don't think it leans into to spoiler territory, but there are, there are Anadis that appear, as Eleanor mentioned, in the adventure path. And I thought, all right, well, they have a role being these reclusive spider people who've come to the school when Eleanor was proposing the the big batch of students that would be peers in the first volume, one of them was an Anadi. And I'm like, what? Except they actually have a role, Eleanor. They already have a role in the in the, the story. So I don't know that we also want to have one that is a fellow student. And this fellow student is actually a, a parent, right? She's She's got twins, twin Anadi <laughs> kids, right? That she's always trying to wrangle at the same time she's going to class and she may lean on the, the heroes. Maybe I could get a little bit babysitting from you while I go to class and you take care of my twins or whatever, my little spider twins. And I'm like, so I told Eleanor, I'm like, I don't, I don't know that that works. She's like, come on, Ron, let me have bug mom. I want bug mom. <laughs> well, all right, let me think about it. And so I would get like the work chats at like weird times of night. It would just be Eleanor saying, Bug mom. <laughs> and I'm like, all right, you can have your Anadi fellow student in the story as well. I don't know. I nagged you, but then your wife got on your case. She did. She actually, she actually was like, and and why can't Anadi mothers go back to school, Ron? I'm like, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> uh, anyway, do we so have think... any more questions? <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, somebody brought up. I didn't. I didn't mention this. This was actually on my notes to bring up, but uh, but I forgot. And so somebody asked, "Hey, wouldn't this be a great place? Is this a good place to use the free archetype rule to sort of power up your characters as Magambi attendants through the adventure path?" We do. We mentioned this before. This is a magic school, and it would hardly feel like a magic school if everybody couldn't do at least some measure of magic. Uh, the Game Mastery Guide has a has a rule to where you can sort of layer on a free archetype in addition to your other choices. And the way that we've done it here to emphasize that the Magambia teaches arcane and primal magics primarily is every character gets to pick whether you also get the druid multi-class archetype or the wizard multi-class archetype. Obviously, if you're a druid, you have to pick wizard. If you're a wizard, you have to pick druid. Um, but otherwise, everybody is going to have the ability to have magic and then be able to sort of grow as they do that. From a, from a narrative adventure perspective, that, that is awesome. It unlocks a lot of things. Like we could, Quinn was mentioning, you were mentioning civic improvements earlier, right? We can put in the adventure an assumption that players are going to have the abilities to participate in a magic ritual because we know they all have magic. They have. That's, that's the, the multi-class multi archetype gives them all that. We can put barriers that you need spells to get past, knowing that 
this can't be the sort of campaign where it's just a you know fighter barbarian a monk and a rogue and nobody's going to have any spells we're we're giving you all magic if you if you don't have any magic you get a little if you've already got a lot of magic you get a little more um so that's uh that really helps emphasize the uh the narrative um <laughs> we have two different people asking about uh romance right they're like look uh, that's a big part of the magic school tropes is romance drama class rivalry how does that work um eleanor i think you've done a great job in putting the uh opportunities for romance in and among the students and even some of the the teachers that they meet i mean yeah that's uh, that's why we've got uh what is it nine nine students and nine teachers in these uh back matter mm -hmm. articles with uh enough personality that I think you can tell whether or not uh, your PC might want to go for them, whether or not they might be interested back. Uh, certainly, I, I mentioned before that um, that one NPC had a very prominent stated flaw of being talked into bad decisions by attractive men, which might sort of uh, <laughs> give you a hint on where you might want to start with him. <laughs> but uh, yeah. Um, there, we don't really have a, a romance of Galarian book out, which is a crying shame, but uh, I think <laughs> there there's enough information there for you and the GM to work something out to include that in the game. All right. Um, Eleanor, uh, can you talk more about the monsters in the Moangi? Oh, um, so we... Uh, you know, they've sort of been scattered around in bestiaries and in AP back matters. Um, some of the ones in the Mongi Expanse are actually pickups from those back matters, for example. Uh, we didn't want the Charuka, who actually, they're a big enough threat and presence in the Mongi Expanse that they have their own city. Uh, we didn't really want the stats for them to be uh, hidden away in AP volume number one <laughs> for people to try and search for whenever it goes out of print or whenever. So so the Charukar in this book, but we also have a lot of new monsters um, that we were drawing on African folklore for uh, mostly West and East Africa, because that's uh, really where we were drawing influences for the Mwangi Expanse. It's around the same geographical region. Um, there's uh, Ron was talking about the Mamlambo, uh, which is uh yeah it's a thing it's sort of crocodile like except it has very long neck and a, like a skeletal horse head and it like glows and attracts things really close to it with that glow and then eats them but it doesn't it doesn't um eat the whole body it likes to like chomp off your face and then suck out your brain and that's, that's sort of its favorite part of the body, so you can usually tell where the victim is. Uh, there are a kind of people called Kanana, um, which Michelle Jones wrote. They only have a half side of their body, like it's only a right half of a human being, but it doesn't seem to affect how they move at all. And when they speak, you only hear half the words coming out of their mouth. And they they themselves probably only hear like half the words that you say to them. So they're even if they were inclined to negotiate, which they are not, <laughs> they are mean. Um, and their victims only have half of the body eaten. Um, but even if you wanted to negotiate with them, it's very hard. Um, and, uh, and if you think also, that... <laughs> I was, gonna, I was Go just going to interject. If you if you think that uh, Michelle Jones' creation of 
a weird type of creature that is all both both ominous and weird and strangely familiar is is terrifying well she wrote the whole third volume so <laughs> you get quite a bit of that in the uh, adventure path as well yeah uh there's a whole lot of yeah just new monsters um the back of the book i think mentions demonic karinas which are sort of these huge plague-bearing owls that have human hands and they're kind of yeah um Ron mentioned the Maliadi, which is the gargantuan hippopotamus that has like a collar of flame around its neck and it has magical powers and can turn into like an entire river or something, um, which you don't want to mess with. Um, and you see some, uh, you'll see actually one of the more interesting ones is the Kava. Um, back in first edition, the Kava referred to something called a pygmy catch. Uh, which is some obscure D&D monster that, uh, I don't know. Uh, we still have the Kava in this book, but they are entirely new. Well, we decided to take the word Kava and create our own monster, which I think you also wrote, Ron, didn't you? Uh, no, I did not do the Kava. Oh, maybe that was... That doesn't sound good. Did I? Hmm. We don't I know. Just, but I wrote the gargantuan hippo with a collar of fire. How can anything else compare to a gargantuan hippo with a collar of fire? Uh, anyway, uh, James Jacob seems to like them a lot. And maybe if you bother him, he might gush about them a little to you. But I, that's all I'm going to say on what a kava is. Um, and we had another question for Quinn. What's the what's the proudest? The, what's the thing you're proudest of, including in your adventure? Oh, um, honestly, um, like, uh, there's a part, there's like, sort of like a, um, a ceremony for like, uh, going to sort of like the, you know, like, a, going to a, another, uh, uh, like a promotion, uh, uh, graduation to sort of next level, uh, that's all I'll say about it, but like, like the ceremony, honestly was one of the coolest things uh for me to write I, you know I, I haven't written anything like that before and i, I it, it, at least you know like I, I i i hope it's really uh when people get to that i i hope it's moving for people um i i, I think it was really cool i'm proud of it oh that is really neat um Alrighty, I think that we are, um, uh, I think we are probably right at our end here. Um, one thing I do want to do is give every all of four of us the opportunity. If uh, if you want to know where people can reach out to you, uh, say so. I am uh, uh, I do a lot of blogging about uh, things that RPG freelancers might be interested in at uh, Run 'Em Up Games. My uh, my. Uh, third-party publishing company, so runamuckgames.com, and I'm also on Twitter at uh, RPG Ron Lundin. Go down the um, line, Eleanor. <laughs> I, I don't generally advertise my Twitter, but I think you can probably find it if you search hard enough. But I will be <laughs> online and contactable through today and probably some of tomorrow at the convention on the Paizo Events Discord. I have an Ask Me Anything channel set up if you want to ask me anything. Um, and I believe that some of us will be in there to 
answer follow-up questions on this panel uh, in not too long. Yep, one of those will be me. So I will be in the Discord. Um, you also can see my Twitter down there, the uh, wrong side, St. John Soul at Twitter. Uh, I'm still kind of building an internet presence, so I don't really do much with it at the moment except post pictures of my cats. But if you'd like to see pictures of my cats, I have a lot of those. <laughs> I, I do, in fact, want to see pictures of your cats, so I know where to go now. <laughs> and Quinn? I, uh, yeah. Um... You can uh, find uh, me mo mostly. I'm I'm talking all sorts of random game stuff on uh, on my Twitter account, uh, qh underscore murphy. Perfect, perfect. Alrighty. Now I think that the if I if I read the schedule right, um, next on the Twitch is Ask the Expert Starfinder Q and A. Um, but no direction is going to be interviewing you, Eleanor, right after this. Yep. Um. So. So you can you can keep following up. Any questions you want to ask about Bug Mom or anything else? <laughs> Alrighty, and we will uh, we will end things uh, right on time here. So thank you very much to the team that's running things behind the scene. Yeah, thank you thank for you. all the attendees watching on Twitch. <laughs>